Hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us, whether you are here on site or online. We have a ton of people, hundreds of people working with us online. I know we have Shanae, who's in Tulsa. We also have Danny, who's in Florida. And we have a bunch of other people. In first service, we had John from Fire Station 20 in Tulsa watching us. So I know we have people from all over the country, whether that's Lance from Claremore or Mimi from here in Owasso. We welcome all of you guys. So if you are here in person, would you put your hands together? Welcome in our online family. So glad to have you all. And uh, before we get started in the message today, I just want to take a quick moment, if you'll allow me to, and pray for the situation that's going on in our world, world right now. If you've been watching the news, you know what's happening in Ukraine. And I just want to take a moment as a church family to pause and lift up that situation in our prayer. So if you would, bow with me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the privilege we have to meet together in this place as your church family and we thank you for all the freedoms that we have as Americans. But we know there are people around the world who are suffering right now, especially our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And so we lift up that nation. We lift up those who are hurting and suffering. We lift up our missionaries that are there. And Father, we pray for peace. And as we look around our world today and we see so much pain, so much suffering, so much evil, we're just reminded of how bad the world needs your son. For he is the answer. Jesus is the answer to all the damage that sin has done and continues to do. And so, Father, we just pray that through all this that's going on, that the world will come to know your son in an even greater way. But in this moment, we lift up the people of Ukraine, all those who are affected. May your hand be upon them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for letting me have a moment to do just that. Well, we are in week four of our series, Uncharted Territory, and I'm glad you're here. And as we continue on our study of Joshua, that's where we're at right now, the Old Testament book of Joshua, we're going to come across a word today as we study that we use a whole lot in our culture as well, and it's the word amazing. How many of you guys probably just in this past week have either said or you've heard somebody else say, that's Amazing. Anybody heard that's amazing or maybe said that's amazing? Yeah, look at all the hands around. We say this all the time and we say it for a variety of reasons. Uh, a few years ago, I was watching this YouTube video of this kid who was a master at flipping a bottle and letting it land on its head. You probably saw kids do this a few years ago, and here he is trying to do this over and over again. And like I said, he's just a pro at this. He does it over and over again. He's got it down, but he gets bored with a bottle, and so he decides to switch 
switch to a marker. And when he does that, I love his reaction. He's like, yeah, I nailed it. I got it. But then he tries something even more difficult. He switches to a crayon. And I thought, there's no way he's going to be able to get a crayon to stand up. But then after several tries, he does it. And again, I love his face there. He's like, man, I'm amazing myself in this moment. And then he moves on to something even more difficult, a pencil. And I was just thinking, there is no way. But sure enough, he does a pencil as well. And I remember showing that to a friend of mine. And my friend's first reaction when he watched, especially that pencil stand up, was, that's amazing. A few weeks ago, I was watching UK play basketball. I know that's shocking to some of you, but I was watching Kentucky play Alabama with my family, and Kellen Grady, he's one of the guards on our team. He's a great shooter, but even though he had a 25-point game and played awesome, at one point during the game, kind of a crucial part of the game, he wasn't paying attention, and so someone passed him the ball, and look and see what happens. Unbelievable the amount of possession. Oh, Grady didn't see it. He does now. And a busted play. Grady with a downtown hit. He's all smiles. And why not? He lost a contact. This is just incredible, right? He must have a soft derriere <laughs> for that to stay close by. Yeah. Uh, what presence to not only gather but finish. That's just what you want as a basketball player is to have a commentator on national TV talk about your soft derriere. You know what I'm saying? But still, when we saw that moment, Alice and I looked at each other and our mouths were open and we both said almost at the exact same time, that was amazing. A few weeks before that, my family went over to another family's house here in our church. They invited us over and they asked me, they said, do your kids eat steak? And I was like, I'm not sure if my kids have ever tried steak. I mean, we don't really feed them that a whole lot so they can try it but you guys don't have to fix steak for them I mean they can eat chicken nuggets or whatever they'll be fine they're not that picky and there's like no 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 no. we want to feed them steak also and so they fix them steak and I was trying to explain to Alex what it was you know it's kind of like hamburger but better you know how do you explain steak to an eight-year-old but he we cut up his steak and he tries it for the first time and I remember he took a couple bites and I wasn't sure what he thought about it. now this guy who invited us over he can really fix steak well I mean it was awesome but I wasn't sure if Alex was going to like it. And so he tried a few bites, and then I asked him, I was like, buddy, what do you think? And he whispered to me, he said, daddy, steak is awesome. It's amazing. And he was just so excited that he had had steak for the first time. And so I thought, yeah, buddy, it is amazing. And so he, he, he's now been introduced to a whole new world of food now, okay? But you know, we use the word amazing a lot in our culture today. And the Bible uses the word amazing a lot as well. But when the Bible uses the word amazing, it's almost as if it uses it in a different way than we typically do. Like it has a deeper meaning than how we typically use it. See, the Old Testament word for amazing is the word Pala. Can you say that with me on the count of three? One, two, three. Pala. See, you know some Hebrew. You can go home and press your neighbors now, okay? But the Hebrew word for amazing is pala, and it refers to acts beyond the power of men, but not the power of God. So it describes these incredible moments when God does something that only he can do. When something takes place, an experience an event, even an understanding that is beyond the comprehension or the ability of human beings. A true act of God. That's how the Bible uses the word amazing. 
This same word, pala, is used to describe in Psalm 106 when God parts the Red Sea. When it talks about that moment, it uses the word pala, amazing, to describe that moment. When the Bible talks about the miracles that took place in Egypt that God did, it uses the word pala. When the Bible speaks of uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, being able to give birth to a son, and when she's like 90 years old and beyond the age of childbearing, it uses the word Pala, and even when the Bible talks about God creating everything, it uses this word. In the book of Jeremiah, it says this. It says, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard. Now, that's how the NIV translates it, but really it's the word pala, amazing. Nothing is too amazing for you. The NIV translator said nothing is too hard for you because they probably thought nothing is too amazing for you. Well, that doesn't really make sense, but I get what the author of this psalm is saying. Nothing is too amazing for God to accomplish within his will. And my question is, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that nothing is too amazing for God? Because I think sometimes we need that reminder. See, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so when you use the word amazing today, is that how you use it? Because, you know, flipping a water bottle or pencil or whatever on its head, that's pretty cool to watch, but that's not pala amazing. A UK basketball player hitting a crazy shot when he wasn't paying attention, that's fun to watch, but that's not pala amazing. That steak that our friend fixed, it was great, and it was I mean, it was incredible. It really was good. I'll take another one if he wants to give me one. But still, it was great. But it wasn't pala amazing. And so let me ask you, when's the last time that you've said that's amazing? In the biblical way. In the pala sense. When's the last time that you have said that's amazing because you knew God had intervened in your life? God had intervened in your moment of history, that God had done something that only he could do, that something happened that was beyond your ability, beyond your skills, beyond your plans, beyond your comprehension, and you said, wow, that had to be God. Because here's the thing, God is the same as he was throughout Scripture, And as we read throughout Scripture, we see time and time again, example after example, of God doing truly amazing things in the midst of his people. But sometimes we think that, or at least we live, like maybe God has changed. He doesn't do amazing things anymore. I mean, I grew up in church, so I was in church every time the church would meet, whether it was Sunday school or vacation Bible school or Sunday morning, whatever. My family went to church, and I grew up learning all the stories of Scripture. And I don't think this was intentional, but as a child, this is what I walked away with. God did a really lot, did a whole lot of cool stuff back then, but not so much anymore. And I think that's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. He wants for us to question the power and the strength of our God among us. But here's what I think we need to know. The point of biblical history, 
isn't to tell us how powerful God was, but how powerful God is. And the more that I have studied God's word, the more I've grown in my relationship with him, the more I understand this. The point of all those stories, the point of all those historical accounts recorded in scripture is not for us just to tell us about how powerful God was back then, but that he is still powerful and that still nothing is too amazing for him. So let me ask you again, do you really believe that? Now, I'm not saying that every single day you're going to have a Red Sea parting moment. I'm not saying that. And I'm also not saying that God exactly works the exact same way in every point in history. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is God can still do the amazing among us. And as you do read these examples in the Bible about God doing truly amazing things, what's interesting is... Oftentimes, he does those truly amazing things in the midst of chaotic, uncertain times. See, we're in this series right now called Uncharted Territory. And we're calling this series that you guys know if you've been here because we think that describes the situation we're in right now as a culture. We are experiencing things in our culture today that we never thought we would experience. And we're dealing with issues that a few years ago we never thought we would have to deal with. In many ways, we are experiencing uncharted territory right now. And as the world continues to change around us, it's easy to get discouraged and it's easy to get distracted. But I think what we need to remember is that this is not the first time that God has led his people through uncharted territory. And that's why we're looking at one of the biblical examples when he does just that. We're looking at the story and the ministry of Joshua from the Old Testament because Joshua was commanded by God to lead his people into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it was uncharted territory. Even though it's called the promised land, it was still a scary place for the Israelites to enter because it was an occupied land. There were people living there that had strong militaries and fortified walls and they were huge. They're called giants even. And so God's people have to go into this uncharted territory, this place where they've never been before, and they're outnumbered, and they're a lot weaker physically than the people that already lived there, and it was scary. But what God reminds his people throughout the book of Joshua and what he wants to tell us, I think, today is nothing is too amazing for him to accomplish. And we're going to see that firsthand as we continue on in Joshua chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me, Joshua chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. But if you remember last week when we left off, Joshua sent in two spies. He had sent in two spies to the land of Canaan, to the city of Jericho. And those spies come back after meeting with uh, the prostitute Rahab, and they give a report of what they saw. And listen again to what these spies said. I said, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Basically, what these spies say is, yes, we're outnumbered, and yes, the people living in the land are stronger when it comes to their military and their weaponry and all that stuff, but it doesn't matter. God's already at work. God's going to give us this land. We can do it. And so the people get fired up because of the spies report. And what the people realize is something that their ancestors never got. It's that God hadn't rescued them from Egypt just so they could experience exodus. God rescued his people from Egypt so they could also experience a new purpose. And I think the same is true for us today. See, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God doesn't save us just so we can be forgiven of our sins. That's part of it. But he also wants for us to experience a new life with him, 
a new purpose, to have new meaning in our lives, where we live for a greater calling. We live for the purpose for which God created us. And so just like God didn't rescue the Israelites just so they could have the experience of Exodus getting out of slavery, he also had a bigger purpose for them to do life with him in the promised land. The same is true for us. And I think we need to remember this. God brings us out of our old life to bring us into a new life with him. And is that how you're living right now? Because Jesus says in John 10, Jesus says, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. You want to live a full life? You want to live a complete life, a whole life, a satisfied life? It comes when you do life with him. But the reason why a lot of people never embrace the full life that Jesus wants to give them, the reason why a lot of people settle for less than the full inheritance that God wants to give them is because our enemy likes to put obstacles in front of us. And what we tend to do is focus on the obstacles rather than focus on God. And as the Israelites get ready to go into the land of Canaan, there's a huge obstacle in front of them. And what they have to realize, what they soon figure out, is that you can't enter Canaan without crossing the Jordan, the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River, this was the first big obstacle that they had to cross. And the Jordan River, at some points during the year, is not really that impressive. It's not really that wide, and basically it's shallow. You could easily swim across it or walk across it. I mean, walk through it, not walk across it, walk through it. But at other points in the year, during the flood season, when the ice off the mountain starts to melt and the rains come, it can be very, very dangerous. The Jordan River can grow to being almost a mile wide. Not only that, there's a lot of force with this rushing water. In fact, here's a video of what the Jordan looks like at flood stage. It's dangerous. Now, this right here, what you're witnessing, and if you've ever seen, you know, fast-moving water with debris and all that, it can be a scary, scary thing. This is what the Israelites at this point in history are facing because Joshua tells us that the Jordan was at flood stage. So they're standing before these rushing waters, and God says, I want you to cross. Now, here's the thing. (laughs) Why at this point in the calendar does God bring the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan? If they just would have waited a few months, the Jordan would have been calm again, would have been small again. Why is it that God brings the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan at this point? Moment. Does God not understand the seasons? Does God not understand the calendar? And I bet you probably had some Israelites in the camp that are saying, let's just wait a few months. You know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we've been wandering for 40 years. What's a few more months, you know? Let's just wait a few more months and then we'll cross the Jordan River. Because remember, there are probably about a million Israelites at this point. It's a lot of people, kids, young and old alike, that have to cross this river. And not only that, they're not really equipped for this, they're former slaves. And I'm sure you had some that were saying, hey, let's just wait a few months. And that reasoning is exactly why so many people today settle for less than their full inheritance. See, we have a tendency sometimes to choose later over living. And what I mean by that is we choose the option of someday. The problem with someday is, you know, someday I'll do that. Someday I'll move forward. Is that someday is always a moving target. In all reality, someday is a code word for never. But we rationalize the situation and say, this isn't the most opportune time, 
this isn't the best period of time. I'll just do it someday. I'll wait, and we choose later over living. I know my marriage needs some help. We haven't been healthy for some time. We'll go to counseling someday. When we get some more free time or some more money, we'll go to counseling someday. I know the Bible tells me that I need to be like serving in the church, and there are a ton of opportunities. They're talking about it all the time. They're at First Church. I'll do it someday. I know the Bible commands me to tithe, but you know, my financial situation, it's kind of tight right now, and I know that God will always provide, but I just don't know if I can do it right now, later. I'll, I'll just, I'll do it later. You know, I know I need to take my faith seriously, and I will. I'm going to start praying more. I will. I'm going to get a devotional book, and I'm going to start studying more and praying more someday. I really need to take care of that addictive behavior I have, but not right now. Well, I really need to spend more time with my family and work less, but let me get our finances a little bit more stable first. Someday. And what we end up saying is, I know I need help. I know I need support. I know I need community. I know I need accountability. I know I need to admit that I'm wrong. I know I need to come clean. I know I need to be honest. And I will someday. And we end up choosing later over really living. And the result is we allow the river to determine our future rather than the God who's bigger than the river that's in front of us. So remember, God's goal isn't just forgiveness, but it's also formation. The reason why God brings the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan at this point is because they need to learn to trust him. He wanted to transform their lives. He wanted to transform their hearts. He wanted for them to grow with him and do life with him. And so since he's not just about forgiveness, he's also about formation, he brings them to the Jordan River at this point so that they will learn to trust him because he had great things in store for them. But let me ask you, what are you allowing to determine your future? The river or the God that's bigger than the river? Because I'm afraid if we're being transparent, a lot of times we let the the river determine what's ahead, where we go, rather than our God. That's the decision that the Israelites in Joshua's day have to make. And so let's read and see what happens. It says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim. Again, that is how you say that. We talked about Shittim last week. And my mom, I talked to her on the phone after services. They watch online from Kentucky. And my mom said, you know, that was a really good sermon last week, Chad. But I wish you would not have paused when you said Shittim. And so, um, mom, I'm sorry that I did that last week. And apparently, I just did it again. Okay, so let's move on. And went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, now that's important, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. Since you have never been this way before, uncharted territory, but keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark, do not go near it. So what does God say? God says, I want you to go to the edge of the Jordan River. And so they get there, and then God says, I want you to camp out for three days. What? Why do they go there, and then they got to camp out for three days? Do they get there, and God's like, oh, I didn't realize that the river was at flood stage. i got to figure out a plan B now. Is that what's going on? No, of course not. God knows what's happening. The reason why God has them camp out for three days and stare at the river 
is because they needed to know they couldn't do this on their own. They needed to realize what they were truly up against, and on their own, they couldn't take on that river. They needed to stare at the river for three days and realize that without God, they were hopeless and helpless. It reminds me of another three-day period when the world felt hopeless and helpless, when Jesus was in the tomb. But after three days, Jesus rose, and all eyes were on him. And that's what happens next. Because did you catch what God says to do after three days of looking at the river? He said, I want you to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this big, huge gold box that represented the presence of God in this day and age. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, which is where Moses would meet with God. So it represented God's presence. And what, he, what God says is, I want the priest to carry my Ark. And when you see the Ark pass by, I want you to follow it. In other words, for three days, keep your focus on the river. But after three days, I want you to change your focus. And I want you to look to me. For three days, I want you to focus on how helpless and hopeless you are. But then, after three days, I want you to look to me as your source of hope. And when you follow me, God says you will know where to go. You will know where to go, even though you've never been this way before. Because what God is saying here is, I'm not sending you across the Jordan. I'm leading you. And that's what we have to remember. A lot of times we think when God says go, he's saying, you go at it on your own. Cross that river on your own. And God's saying, listen, I'm going with you. I'm going to be in front of you. I'm going to lead you. You're not on your own. I'm not sending you across the Jordan. I'm leading you. I'm taking you across the Jordan. And when you keep your focus on me, like I said a second ago, Joshua reminds us, then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. You may not know where to go, but God does. And Joshua says, we got to get ready because God is going to do something amazing among us. In fact, this is what Joshua says to the people. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. I love this language here. And again, there's that word amazing that we talked about just a second. God's going to do something that only he can do. You just have to get ready for it. See, the Israelites in Joshua's day and age, they had heard the stories of God doing amazing things in the past. They had heard the stories from their fathers and grandfathers, from their mothers and grandmothers about God parting the Red Sea and all the miracles that he did in Egypt and how God took care of the people in the desert. But you see, this generation, they were either kids when all that was happening or they hadn't been born yet. They hadn't experienced it yet for themselves. And what Joshua is saying is get ready. God's getting ready to do something amazing within us in this period of time just as he did for those who came before us. And I think this was important because you can't live off the miracles of yesterday forever. You can't live off the faith of previous generations forever. And sometimes we have a tendency to do this. We look back to the past and we say, you know, back then God was working and God was doing great things, but it's just not the same today. You can't live off the miracles of yesterday forever because God's name is not I was. God's name is I am. He is still God. He's still in control. He still has a plan for his people. 
And his purposes will be carried out. Every generation needs to hear. God's name is not I was, it is I am. And that's why I love what God says next to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. I love that. Because you know what God here is saying? Joshua, I get it. You're not Moses. But I'm still God. And sometimes I need to hear that. Because I'm not Moses. And I'm not Joshua. And I'm not Elijah. And I'm not David. And I'm not Peter. And I'm not Paul. And I'm not James. And I'm not John. But God is still God. And the same is true for you. The God who was is still the God who is. And he can still do amazing things for his people. And I ask the question again, do you really believe that? Because if you do, you get ready for him to do amazing things. You anticipate him doing amazing things. That's why Joshua says to consecrate yourself. And that means set apart for an extraordinary purpose. What's Joshua saying? God has an extraordinary purpose for you. And when you get that, when you understand that God has an extraordinary purpose for you, you trust him and you follow him. And I think we need to hear that today as well because our world isn't telling us that. Our world, our culture tells us that we're just a big accident, that we're just here by happenstance and chance. And that's what our enemy wants us to believe. But God is telling us, you're not an accident. You were created by me for an extraordinary purpose. God created you out of love. And he wants to do life with you. And you are valuable and precious in his sight. Don't ever let the enemy tell you otherwise. You were created for an extraordinary purpose. And here's the thing. The church as the body of Christ. God's people. The church was also established for an extraordinary purpose. Sometimes we treat the church like it's just a club or a social group or just another humanitarian organization. That's not the fullness of what God intended his church to be. See, the church is described in Scripture as the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, we are advancing Jesus' mission on the earth. We are God's chosen instrument to change the world, to introduce the world to his son. And through the church, Jesus changes lives. We are here for an extraordinary purpose. That's why Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God, because we are the new Israel, shining light in the midst of a dark world. And we need to take the mission of the church seriously, because we're here for an extraordinary purpose. And I hear people talk all the time when they hear about current events and what's happening in our culture and around the world, and they'll say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I'll tell you what the answer is. The church has got to be the church. Because when we are the light of the world, as Jesus calls us to be, the darkness will run from us. Jesus promises that. We're here not just to waste time. We're here for an extraordinary purpose that God has given us. And like I said, when you understand that, you'll follow God wherever he leads. See, God tells the Israelites, I want you guys to follow the priests who are carrying the ark into the Jordan River. But 
I want you to stay back a thousand yards. That's 10 football fields. You know what that distance is? My family the other day got to go to the BOK Tower. I didn't get to go with them. I'm a little bit jealous. But they got to go to the BOK Tower and look out and see, you know, all of Tulsa and the surrounding area. It's beautiful. And in this next picture that Allison took is just of the city. And if you look at these two buildings right back there, I measured it. That's about 1,000 yards. It's a pretty good distance. And that's how far God wanted the ark to go before the people could start moving forward. And I'm kind of like, God, what's that all about? I mean, at that, at that place, at that point, the people could barely even see the ark. And they definitely couldn't see where they were going. And that's the whole point. What God is telling them is, you don't have to see where you're headed. You just have to see me. You just have to focus on me. As long as you can see the ark, you don't have to see what's on the other side of the Jordan. You just have to look to me, and I will get you where you need to go. And we need to stop trying to have absolute certainty when it comes to life because we're never going to have it in this world. We've got to stop trying to always figure out what's going to be on the other side of the Jordan because we're not going to know. You don't need to see the other side to move ahead. You just need to see God. And so God says, keep the ark out where they can just see it, and then let them follow. And so as they begin to follow, as the people move forward, this is what happens. It says, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance Away, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So I want you to get what's going on here. If you were an Israelite who had heard the stories of how God had worked in the past and you knew the story of the Red Sea, you're probably thinking that the moment that the priests stick their feet into the water, and that was dangerous enough. I mean, this is rushing water, right? So, but still, once they stick their feet in the water, like God says, we're going to have a Red Sea moment, right? It's just going to part in two. We're going to walk across on dry ground just like our grandparents did, just like our parents did. So you're probably expecting once the priests step in there with the ark, Red Sea moment. But that's not what happens. They stick their feet in the water, and the water stays for a little bit. See, did you catch here what, what's happening? God says, I'm going to stop the water, but I'm going to stop it a great distance away. In other words, you've got to keep walking before you're going to fully experience the miracle. And sometimes we get this backwards. Sometimes we get this out of order. God says, I want you to walk, and then you're going to experience the miracle. And what we often pray for is, God, fix this. We want to experience the miracle right now, and then we'll move forward. And that's not what God says. God says, you just keep walking, and you will experience the miracle. And what we can learn from this is our feelings, our feelings are to follow our faith. Our faith doesn't follow our feelings. We don't wait for the time to feel right. We don't wait for us to be totally comfortable in the situation and all the stars align before we move forward. We let our faith shape our feelings, not the other way around. And when we do, God meets us in the mud. See, a lot of times we want God to meet us on the shore. But God meets us in 
the mud. And so when the priests do step into the water, the Bible says that the water starts to pile up. And look at what it says. As soon as their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. Some people say Adam. I don't know what it is. I'm just going to say Adam. That makes more sense to me. But anyway, at this town called Adam. Now, here's what you need to know. Adam, that was 20 miles away from where the Israelites are right now. So if the water stops 20 miles away, that's like from here to downtown Tulsa. If the water stops 20 miles away, it's going to take a while for the ground to be dry, isn't it? It's going to take a while for the water to completely stop flowing. And what that means is the priests, they take one step. There's still water. They take another step. There's still water. Another step. There's still water. Probably four or five steps in. They're still in water. But then the Bible says by the time they got to the middle of the river, they were walking on dry ground. See, sometimes when God works in our lives and does amazing things, he does it like the Red Sea. Instantly in that moment. But other times... I dare say the majority of the time, God doesn't work like that. He works upstream instead. He says, just trust me, just move forward, and I will set things in motion to get you where you need to be. And the reason why he does that is, again, he's not just about forgiveness, he's also about formation. He wants us to learn and grow during this process. So sometimes... I will hear people say, Chad, you know, I know the Bible says I need community, but I started a small group, and I'm just not getting anything out of it yet. Well, how long have you been going? Oh, a week or two. Maybe God's working upstream. Uh, Chad, I know the Bible says for me to tithe, but I started tithing, and it's still a struggle. Well, how long have you been tithing? Oh, a few weeks now. (laughs) I know I need to go to marriage counseling, and so we started, and we've been to two sessions, and nothing's changed yet. I know I need to spend more time with my family, but when I go try to spend time with my family, they act like I'm a stranger. Well, you just start doing it. A lot of times the way that God works isn't a Red Sea moment. But he starts working upstream. And we just have to trust him and do what he says. You guys ever play with dominoes when you were kids? You know what I'm talking about? I saw this video the other day of this human domino competition where they use mattresses to have the world's largest human domino competition. I mean, isn't this crazy? Uh, you know, I think maybe I just gave our student ministry an idea. I'm not sure. You guys should try that. But, you know, you guys understand how dominoes work, right? Here it is. We're almost to the end. Yeah, there we go. It takes a while for the effect to really happen. And so I've got some dominoes up here with me right now. And if I were to stack them up, just like I used to do when I played with them as a, as a kid... And put them in in order here. What I could say is after all the dominoes are stacked is this is sometimes how our life is. We have this big barrier in front of us. And this big barrier is piling up. And it's getting bigger and heavier all the time. And so we say, God, help us out. Take care of this. And what we want is for God to do a Red Sea moment. And the barrier's gone. But oftentimes... What God does is, is, okay, I'll work. I'll do something amazing in your midst, but you have to trust me. And so I see that big barrier. Just wait. 
Be patient. Trust me. You take a step of faith, and I'll start the motion for that barrier, that barrier to be taken care of. What if I were to take these dominoes and I were to stack them all the way across the stage? This is a pretty big stage. If I were just to start hitting them and they go all the way, they would go all the way across the stage, it would take a while to actually knock down, knock down the barrier at the end. But it's still going to happen. That's what God's doing in this moment. And what we need to realize is when we take a step of faith, that can enable the earth-shaking power of God to start 20 miles away. Even when we can't see it yet, even when we don't understand exactly what's going on, even when we don't know what's in front of us, when we take the step of faith, we enact the power of God in our lives. And God is often working upstream. So let me ask you, are you tired of wandering? Are you tired of Wasting your time. God's got something amazing in store for you. I love what Joshua says in this passage. He says, today you will know that the living God is among you. Is that how you're living right now? Do you know that the living God is among you? Do you see him working? Because he wants to. But for that to happen... You got to get your feet wet. You got to take that step towards Him. And some of you, maybe you don't just need to get your feet wet. Some of you need to get your whole body wet. We got a baptistry right over there. And some of you have been listening for some time to messages here. You've been talking to friends. And you know you need to enter into this new relationship with Jesus. But you've been afraid to take that first step. Or maybe you've just been resisting. Or maybe you've had the someday attitude. Someday I will. God wants to do amazing things in your life. But for that to happen, you got to get your feet wet. Or maybe your whole body wet. Today when you leave, everybody is going to get a domino. And if you're online, if you want a domino, we will send you one. We'll mail you one. Just put it in the chat or email the church office. But everybody's going to get a domino, a single domino, not a bunch of them, so you can't play with them. But you get one. And I've been carrying around a domino in my back pocket. Because with everything that we are experiencing in our world today, it's easy sometimes to say, where's God? And when you have those moments, when you ask, where's God? You need to be reminded, he's working upstream. He hasn't abandoned his people. His name is not I was. His name is I Am. And the God who always was is the God who will always be. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this moment that we've had to open up your word and to study. And I pray that we can receive this challenge from the book of Joshua today. And be a people that anticipate you doing amazing things in our lives. Father, may we trust you. May we take the steps of faith that you are calling us to take. And if there's anybody here today that needs to get their feet wet, maybe needs to get their whole body wet, don't let them walk away and say someday. Today, Father, you want to give them the fullness of life. May we trust in you as we move forward with you. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.